Uh, I failed my first driving test. I made loads of mistakes. I stalled whilst exiting the highway. I'm pretty sure I didn't stop at one of the stop signs and I failed to indicate when lanes were merging. And it was pretty embarrassing because most of my mates passed the first time. Uh, There was one friend who failed more tests than me, but he decided it was cheaper to learn by failing the test than by paying for lessons. But I'd had loads of lessons and yet I still failed. Now, just for your assurance, I did pass the second time, so I do have a license, I'm allowed to drive. But today, we're looking at a much better event. We're looking at Jesus passing the test. Jesus being tested by the devil in the wilderness. Uh, The tests Jesus faces do two things. Uh, One, they reveal something of our own heart. Uh, We're going to learn today about how temptation works in us. But even more, these events shine a light brightly on Jesus. We get to see how Jesus is the saviour we need. So as we get into Matthew 4, what's the context? Uh, Jesus has just been baptised. He's been faithful to God. He's fulfilled all righteousness. Uh, God the Holy Spirit has come upon him. And God the Father has declared Jesus to be the beloved son, the delight of his father. And the next thing, after this moment of connection and affirmation, Jesus is led into a lonely, desolate place. So have a read with me from verse 1. So this is Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Why does the Spirit lead Jesus into a context of temptation or testing. One thing it shows, this must be necessary. There's something about what will happen in the wilderness that's essential for Jesus to be our saviour, for him to be our substitute priest and king. Uh, Jesus stays in the wilderness without food for 40 days and nights. And if you know the Old Testament, this is ringing loads of bells, uh, both Elijah and Moses spend 40 days and nights on Mount Sinai, both of them without any food. Maybe we're meant to see Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah, that he exceeds and fulfills the law and the prophets. But what I reckon is more significant, this pictures Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, just before Israel is rescued from slavery in Egypt, just before they wander for 40 years in the wilderness, God says Israel is his firstborn son. Israel is God's son. Jesus is God's son. That's what the voice from heaven said at the baptism. And now, just as Israel was led by God, God in the, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, just as Israel was led by God into the wilderness, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And as we read from Exodus 15 today, it doesn't take Israel long to grumble in the wilderness, to fail the test, to, to fail to be God's faithful and obedient son. And so as Jesus is led into the wilderness, that's the question. Will he fail too? Will he also be a grumbling, disobedient son? Uh, Last thing about the context, Jesus is hungry. 
40 days and nights without food or water, you'd be starving. Jesus is hungry and alone. And it's at this opportune time when Jesus is weakened physically and emotionally, because Jesus is truly human, he's really hungry, this is the moment for testing. That's a little window into our reality, isn't it? Physical and emotional things that are going on around us make us more vulnerable to sin. I can't remember where I got this from, but uh, this is a good little acronym for help us be aware of ourselves. The acronym is HALT. It reminds us about things that make us vulnerable to temptation. Hungry, and I reckon today you could add hungry, hot and humid. Angry, lonely, tired. The point of the acronym is to be aware. When you're hot and humid, you are more likely to become angry. And then if you're angry enough, you'll become lonely. You know, when you start feeling some or all of these things, just be aware of how your sinful tendencies come into play and then halt, stop and pray, run from the tempting situation, stop and change something, get some food, call a friend. It's a little helpful strategy for fighting sin. But Jesus doesn't have that opportunity. He's hungry and alone. He can't call a friend. He's probably tired as well. And at this time of vulnerability, the tests come. And the first test hits right on that point of vulnerability. It's about provision and trust. Is Jesus going to trust God's provision? Uh, Listen to verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Uh, This test takes us back to Israel, back to God's son in the wilderness. Israel didn't trust God when they were hungry and thirsty. They didn't cry out to God in prayer. No, they grumbled against God. My favorite one is Numbers 11. Oh, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic. Oh, remember the good old days when we got to eat leeks. Big pot of leek soup after we were whipped by by the slave masters. Those were the good old days. Our memory can play tricks, can't it? Especially when things get a little uncomfortable, we look back with rose tinted glasses and grumble about what God has given us now. But not Jesus. 40 days without food. He is seriously starving, but no grumbling. But the test is put in front of him. Hey, you know you can fix this. You could take matters into your own hands. If you're really God's son, you've got the power. If you're really God's son, surely God would want you to look after yourself. It's a good test. Now, I've been using the word test. Have you been noticing that? rather than the word temptation. The words pretty much mean the same thing. And if you've got an NIV, look at the footnotes. It says, look, the word, the Greek word, the original word, could be translated either way. The reason I'm saying test is because eating bread isn't sin. It's not even sin for Jesus to miraculously provide food. He'll do it for 5,000 people with only a few bits of bread and fish. The issue isn't the bread. The test is... Will Jesus shortcut the Father's plans? Will he patiently trust God, even though it's hard? Or will he be impatient? 
Will he take the easy solution? Jesus answers the test the way he answers every test, by resting in the truth of God's word. Uh, Look at verse 4. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The quote comes from Deuteronomy. Uh, It's Moses reflecting back on those times in the wilderness of Israel's hunger. And he's answering the question, why did God provide manna enough for each day for 40 years in the wilderness? And the bit of scripture Jesus quotes gives the answer. God did it to teach them they don't live by bread alone, but by God's word, which I think means two things. One is we need God's word more than we need food on the table. Yes, we need food. It keeps us alive physically. But God's word gives us true life, spiritual, eternal life. And living by God's word also means we depend on God for everything. We depend on him for physical and spiritual life. In our world, it's really easy for us to kid ourselves that what we have is because of our own hard work. We fool ourselves that if we work and have money in the bank, then we can buy everything we need. We can solve any problem that comes with enough money. Some of us dream of self-sufficiency. We dream of going off grid, growing everything we need, and we think it's strong to be independent and not need anyone else. This is a lie. I'd be tempted to say it's a lie from Satan. Everything we have comes from God. We do not live by bread alone. Being truly human requires connection and dependence on God and other people. And Jesus knows this because he is true humanity. And so he passes the first test by trusting God's provision. He refuses to take the easy, impatient way, selfishly using his divine power, and instead he trusts his father's timing and provision. The second test is about knowledge. Is is Jesus going to trust his father's promise to protect him or test God to know for certain? Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up on their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The pressure is on for Jesus. Forty days. He's been waiting for his father to provide and protect. Forty days he's been alone and hungry. And the devil says, How do you know your father's going to help you? How do you know if he's able to provide and protect? And the test is clever because he grabs a Bible verse and quotes it 100%. Reminds us a bit of the serpent in the garden. Did God really say, in the garden, the serpent slightly misquotes God. But with Jesus, he knows he can't get away with that. He quotes the Bible 100% correctly. It's a perfect quote from Psalm 91. But at the same time, it's completely wrong. It's wrong because it turns a promise into a test. It's a serious challenge for Jesus because it looks like a lose-lose situation. If Jesus says, nah, I'm not going to jump off the temple, does it mean he doesn't trust God? That he doesn't believe God's promise in the scriptures? But if he says, 
Yes, I'll jump off the temple. Then as he says himself, he'd be dishonouring God by testing him, turning a promise into a test. Now, this is really interesting. It's, it's pretty obvious as you read this, it's pretty obvious Jesus has the right way of approaching the Bible, the right way of relating to his father. It's obvious the devil is distorting what Psalm 91 is, is on about. But how do we learn from this? How do we learn to take God's promises the right way? Because we can fall off this horse on both sides. Uh, one side is to doubt the promises of God. This is probably our risk. We love talking about God's promises, but when we pray, oh, we don't really think God will do anything. Uh, the other side is to turn the promise into the test. That's uh, probably the danger for charismatic or Pentecostal believers, the, the name it and claim it approach. And Psalm 91, the psalm quoted by the devil, is a common one for this. Psalm 91.3 says, He, God will himself, will rescue you from the bird trap and from the destructive plague. Some take this to say, name it and claim it, I don't need medicine, I don't need to wash my hands. Jesus is the only medicine I need against the plague. But both of these are failures to trust God and to apply the Bible properly. So how do we stay on the horse? How do we avoid falling off either side? It's a big question. But one rule of thumb is keeping in mind God's character. Testing God by jumping off the temple or ignoring medical advice, it might look like faith, but it doesn't fit with the humility that comes from trusting God. It doesn't fit the the character God is building in his people of patience and faithful endurance. What's at the heart of this second test? Impatience. And ease. Uh, Jesus has been suffering in the wilderness. You could imagine him wondering if God is really going to provide and protect and the devil offers a shortcut. Jump off the temple, force those angels to come. No more suffering, no more waiting. But Jesus passes the test. It's not a lose-lose situation. Uh, The third test is about power and glory. Jesus is suffering, hidden and alone. Will he take the easy, quick way to power and glory? Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And angels came and attended him. If you know the end of the story, after the cross, Jesus is raised to life again. And before he ascends to his heavenly throne, Jesus says, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the plan, to give all power and glory all over the world to Jesus. The eternal plan of the triune God is that Jesus would take on our humanity, become nothing, go down to the cross, and then be raised and glorified so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not sinful for Jesus to receive all the kingdoms and their splendor. 
But the test is, you can have it now. You don't have to wait. The test is, you can have it without suffering. You can have the crown without the cross. And again, Jesus responds with God's word. Exodus 20, the first two commandments. No other gods before Yahweh, the one who rescues from Egypt. No fake gods. Do not bow down and worship anyone or anything else. Jesus refuses to give in to the offer, the test of patience and ease. He doesn't give it a second thought. Three tests, he passed them all. And then, I love verse 11, having been tested to be impatient and take the easy way, God does what he promised. The Father gives him what the tests offered Jesus to take for himself. Angels give what was offered in the first two tests, food and protection. And I think God sends the angels just to rub it in. He keeps the promise of Psalm 91. But God keeps his promise, but he's not a performing seal. God provides as a loving heavenly father. He provides not removing all tests and all hardship, but he provides through the hardship. And through these tests, the Father confirms what he said. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the beloved Son. He's the faithful Son. And he will receive the kingdom and the glory, but that awaits another test. The crown will come, but it's through the cross. Now, what does this event teach us about Satan, sin, and our Saviour? We've already seen... A few of those things on the way through, but I just want to tie a few loose ends together. First up, Satan. One question I've always had is, why does he bother? Does he really think the second person of the Trinity, even as he takes on and becomes truly human, does he really think Jesus will give in? Does he really think the eternal Son of God will bow down and worship him? Does he really think the Creator will worship something he created? The reality is, Sin, evil is stupid. Does he think that? That's that's not the point. Sin is stupid. Just think about our sin. It's stupid to gossip. Yeah, you might impress people for a second as you degrade someone with your gossip, but gossip shows you're untrustworthy. You show yourself to be weak and insecure because you're using gossip to pretend you have power. How stupid is gossip? It's stupid to lie. It destroys relationships and your reputation. You will get caught. And it's an offence against the true and living God. You could keep going. The point is, sin is stupid. Don't try and find logic in what the devil does, just like there's no sense in human sin. Now, talking about Satan has already shown us something of sin, but Jesus also gives us an example of how to put sin to death. Oh, we've already talked about knowing our physical, natural weaknesses. Halt! Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Oh, we've seen how each of the tests prey on impatience and ease. This is hard in our culture. Our culture trains us to be impatient and to avoid pain and suffering. We want it all, we want it now, and we want it to be easy. But Jesus shows us the path to godliness requires patience and will only happen through suffering. How can we learn this way of Jesus? Something we're going to keep digging into 
in the Sermon on the Mount. But for now, it's something we need to be trained in. Paul says, train yourself in godliness. Godliness isn't about gritting your teeth and trying harder. It's about training. How do you train? Say you want to train as a plumber. Well, do you apprentice yourself to an experienced plumber? You observe what the master does, and a good trainer will start uh, by giving you the simple tasks. Can you find the left-handed screwdriver? No. And then as you prove your, your skills, give you more and more advanced jobs. It's the same with godliness. We need to apprentice ourselves ultimately to Jesus... But we also learn from other Christians who are further along. We stop listening to the stories our culture tells us that encourage impatience and ease and we prayerfully and deliberately do things that grow patience and resilience. And we learn it from one another. Last thing, how does this event show us Jesus? Uh, This event brings into the open what we see through the whole life of Jesus. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned, and he didn't do it so that he'd be an example of perfection. Jesus doesn't say, hey, look, I can do it. Now it's your turn. Why can't you? No, Jesus' sinlessness is what makes him able to be our saviour. It's because the sinless saviour died that sinners like us can be forgiven and restored to God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's a great verse on this. It's the great swap. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has no sin. He was tested but never failed. And because of this, when he dies on the cross, he's not being punished for his own sin. No, on the cross, Jesus becomes sin for us. He takes onto himself his people's sin. He dies the death our sin deserves and the great swap happens. His people who are united to him by faith, we receive his righteousness. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. Because he is sinless but takes our sin, Jesus can be our saviour. And what's more, as the risen and ruling Christ, as Jesus rules and reigns on his heavenly throne, he continues to be our saviour. He continues to save us as our great high priest. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry and alone. Jesus knows what it's like to be tested and tempted. And this gives us two types of hope. First, that he did not sin. And so he takes our sin onto himself And he's the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect swap. Second, he can empathise. We know we can run to him for help when we're tempted. We know we can run to him for forgiveness when we sin. He will not turn you away. Jesus passed the test because we can't. He passed the test to pour out his grace on us. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We praise you, Jesus, that you passed where we fail. We praise you because this means you are the perfect sacrifice, the only one who can take our sin so we can receive your righteousness. We praise you, Jesus, because you're our high priest, one who knows testing and temptation yet is without sin. Help us know this truth, that we will run to you when we are tempted, knowing you'll show us grace in our time of need. Strengthen us with this truth for Jesus' sake. Amen.